Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Have you heard you can listen to your favorite news podcasts ad-free? Good news. With Amazon Music, you have access to the largest catalog of ad-free top podcasts included with your Prime membership. To start listening, download the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts. That's amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Let's talk about neoliberalism. It's a big word that means a couple of really, really simple things. For example, right now the Democratic Party has got this internal battle going on about the so-called problem solvers, little $500 billion new money over a 10-year period infrastructure bill. You know, it basically fills potholes and rebuilds bridges, which is fine. And, by the way, it has huge subsidies for for-profit companies, and it includes public-private partnerships, which are all part of this kind of new world that Ronald Reagan brought us. On the other hand, there's this $3.5 trillion bill that progressives are pushing that is really a reversion back to LBJ and FDR, to the classic progressive way of doing things. So what is neoliberalism? Well, neoliberalism includes free trade, economic austerity and tax cuts, and deregulation and privatization. Those basically five things in three categories. The free trade part, we were sold free trade by Reagan and, and his buddies as the end to wars. Thomas Friedman, in fact, uh, came up with this thing called the McDonald's theory that uh, no, in the history of the world, no, no two countries that had McDonald's had ever gone to war with each other. Well, it turns out it's not true. But this was the sales pitch. If we simply do away with national borders with regard to money and we, with regard to corporations, we keep them on people, right? We don't, we don't want people moving across national borders. But we, we free up big money, billionaires and corporations, so that they can completely ignore national borders. Then, uh, and, and our economy becomes so interdependent with, for example, China's economy that we'll never go to war with China because, hey, we'd both be crazy to do that because who wants to crash our mutual economies? That was the theory. And it seemed to make a certain amount of sense, except now China's starting to look a little more belligerent. It was also supposed to eliminate poverty in the world. You know, the theory was that, you know, rich countries are protecting their workers and keeping wages high and poor countries don't have, you know, industries. So if we move some of those industries to the poor countries, they will, you know, their workers, even though they're low wage right now, eventually they'll become middle class and they'll make more money and the whole world will rise out of poverty. Well, there was a grain of truth to that, too. China now has a middle class that's larger than the entire population of the United States. Contrast that to when I was there in 1988. I spent November of 1988 in Beijing, and it was one incredibly poor country. There wasn't a single skyscraper in Beijing. The tallest building was the Hilton Hotel. It was 11 stories. But how do they get that rich? Well, we lost 50,000 factories. It gutted the American middle class. Ten years ago, we, for the first time since the post-war era, we hit the point where fewer than half of Americans are in the middle class. Austerity, which is another part of this, was supposed to end crime, end ghettos, and cut poverty in America. Why? Because the theory went, as Reagan talked about, um, basically lazy people, which was Reagan's code for black people, are not working, they're staying in their ghettos, Reagan was saying, because they get paid to have babies, and we need to end that. And this, was, this is the neoliberal story, and so, you know, let's, ha let's end welfare as we know it. 
And let's double down on tough crime penalties, three strikes and you're out, and things like that to end the super, super predators in our cities. Reagan told this story of how upset you know, good white people in line at the supermarket got when a strapping young buck whipped out his food stamps to pay for his beer and steak. Seriously. There's a link to it in the story if you, if you want to read the actual thing. This was his male version of his welfare queen thing. And deregulation was supposed to let the magic of the marketplace work. And instead, what did it bring us? It, it, deregulation brought us more poisoning. You know, and, I mean, and, 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 and uh, the Flint water crisis, for example. Well, this was the privatization part of it. Privatization was another piece of neoliberalism. Privatization, the, the, the whole Flint water crisis was the result of an effort to privatize the water supply of Flint. This is what Republican Governor Rick Snyder was up to in Michigan. And, you know, it was also, deregulation was also supposed to end economic depressions. In 1999, when Republican Senator Phil Graham stood on the floor of the Senate and said, you know that Glass-Steagall thing that keeps the, the checkbook banks and the gambling Wall Street banks separate? That worked out just fine, but we don't need that anymore. And so they blew it up, which brought us right to the 2008 Bush crash. Privatization was also supposed to make our power systems more resilient and our schools better. Right, and it's gutted our schools, and now California and Texas have rolling blackouts. But Reagan put this into law and into policy in 1981, and every president since Reagan, including the Democratic presidents, Clinton and Obama, have embraced neoliberalism. And now Joe Biden is seriously talking about rejecting large chunks of this neoliberal agenda. And that's the war we're seeing inside the Democratic Party right now with the big infrastructure bill versus the small infrastructure bill. It's the neoliberals against the progressives. And if the neoliberals win, I fear that this country will slide deeper into oligarchy and the strongman kind of government necessary to enforce it will become more like Russia or Hungary. On the other hand, if the progressives win, then I think we have a good chance of going back to the era of FDR and LBJ, where we're actually taking care of America, we're reviving democracy, we're creating enthusiasm for a progressive, positive, forward-moving country. You know, taking us back to the era of Jack Kennedy, I think it's entirely possible, but an awful lot is riding right now on this legislation. You're listening to the Tom Hartman Program. Call 202-808-9925. And that's the question. Are the Democrats and Joe Biden going to move in a progressive direction, or are they going to double down on the neoliberalism of the preceding Democratic administrations? Tom Harmon here with you. So there's a real interesting question. There was a seven-figure contribution to one of the main Democratic political action committees by fellow George Marcus, is his name. He's the chairman of both the real estate brokerage firm Marcus and Milchap and the real estate investment trust Essex Property Trust. June 1st, they gave a million bucks to the House Majority PAC, which is you know a large super PAC. He also gave $263,000 last month to a committee benefiting the DNCC and to uh, Speaker Pelosi's reelection campaign. And Rashida Tlaib, the Democrat from uh, the, the western suburbs of Detroit, has come out and basically asked Democrats to return this donation. And what she's implying, what she's suggesting is that that donation might have been part of the reason why the Democrats weren't more proactive in making sure that the eviction moratorium didn't get extended. Now, I haven't seen any specific evidence of that other than the fact that the moratorium didn't get extended, which, you know, in, in Rashida Tlaib's mind, Congresswoman Tlaib's mind, is, is huge evidence and may well be. But I think this all opens up a much larger issue, which is money in politics. Democrats are not immune to this. They can't be immune to it. If you don't have enough money to win an election, you're not in power. It's that simple. The rules of the game of politics in the United States were changed in 1976 and 78 with two Supreme Court decisions that Lewis Powell participated in after Nixon put him on the court in 72. And that was the Buckley case in 76 and the Bellotti case in 78. Those set the stage for Citizens United in 2010. 
And what Citizens United and those other cases said was that corporations are people and they have rights under the Constitution and included in those rights is the right of free speech and the way that a corporation which does not have a mouth speaks is with money and therefore money is free speech when a corporation gives money or or the ceo of a corporation or any other morbidly rich person you know some very very wealthy person gives an enormous amount of money to a politician we used to call that prior to 76 we used to call that corruption in fact we used to call it bribery and the supreme court said you can't call it that anymore that's now just normal politics in America. And the result of that is that America now operates more like an oligarchy than a democracy. Uh, more often than not, what the rich people want and what big corporations want is what gets passed into law. And what the average person wants, the average, uh, particularly working class people and poor people, what the average person wants in America almost never gets made into law. Now that is changing with a democratic majority. And it's changing in some real substantial ways, which is really good news. But like I said, Democrats aren't immune to the influence of big money. We need to get corporate money and billionaire money out of politics. And it is possible for Congress to do this by legislation. It is also possible to do it with an amendment to, to, to basically overturn, you know, a constitutional amendment to overturn these decisions. That's a much bigger lift and a much more difficult job and much less likely. But we need to take this on. And I want the Democrats to put this at the top of their agenda. And so this is something to pass along, I suppose, in your political activism. It certainly is part of mine that when I talk to uh, people you know, who represent me or when I talk to the people in their office you know, with my regular phone calls to Congress, I'm saying, please make overturning Citizens United one of your top priorities. We have to reverse the damage that the Supreme Court has done to the United States. I, if you want to do a deep dive on it, I wrote a whole book about it, The Hidden History of the Supreme Court and the Betrayal of America. And it really was a betrayal. And it's something that we need to, to, to be pointing out. Now, that said, there's also this uh, very alarming story. Uh, this is being reported by uh, NBC4 in Washington, D.C., uh, that the Justice Department has warned a federal court there's a, a fellow who is a member of the Proud Boys. His name is uh, Ethan Nordine. And they set his bond at, at a very high amount. And I'm, I'm talking like $980,000. I'm not sure if that's the exact bond amount, but that's the amount of money that apparently flowed into his account. And nobody knows where it came from. Now, we're discovering that, you know, big money is funding Alec and... Big money is apparently also starting to fund the Proud Boys. This is what prosecutors wrote in their filing. This is from the Department of Justice. The, the prosecutor's talking to the judge. And they said, the only substantially new development is Defendant Nordine's apparent influx of $980,000 to offer as a secure bond. Defendant has not offered the court any information about the source of these funds. And the sudden windfall raises more questions about defendant's continuing power and clout than it resolves. Now, I would be the first to say that anybody in the United States who's charged with a crime, who's trying to raise money for bond, should be able to accept that money from anybody. You know, under any circumstances, basically. It's, you know... I'm not quite so flipped out about the fact that it's going on. I mean, you know, obviously, the prosecutors are like, okay, this guy is you know, an accused criminal. Who's supporting him? And I think that you know, some transparency might be in order there. But this also speaks to the influence of money in our political system. If you want to argue that you know, what this fellow and many of his compatriots were trying to do on January 6th was alter the course of American politics, which I don't think anybody would dispute. Even the people on their side would say, yeah, you know, we, we were trying to, quote, stop the steal, to stop Joe Biden from being certified as the rightfully elected president of the United States. And to a certain extent, that arguably is political. We have completely lost control of big money in our political system in this country. And if we don't do something about this, if we don't get this under control, we're going to end up like Hungary, where Tucker Carlson is broadcasting from this week. 
where, uh, you know, I, I, the, the Hungarians are starting to push back. Viktor Orban, the, the oligarch uh, running Hungary, just uh, basically in the last election, just kind of lost Budapest. But he's still in charge. He's still in power. The big election that he faces is next year. He's getting a little help from Fox News and from Tucker Carlson. And Tucker Carlson and the whole idea of ending democracy in America is getting a big boost from Viktor Orban. You know, you put all this stuff together and it's just a very, very ugly picture. You're listening to the Tom Hartman program. That we need to be aggressively doing something about. We as a people, we need to deal with money in politics now. Quick math, the less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one platform and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required, accessible from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. You improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. Now through April 15th, NetSuite is offering a one-of-a-kind flexible financing program. Just head over to netsuite.com slash Hartman with two N's. netsuite.com slash Hartman. That's netsuite.com slash Hartman. Ophthalmologist Dr. Strauss has seen firsthand how the metaverse is helping surgeons practice the procedures to treat cataracts. Cataracts are the primary cause of avoidable blindness. He works with a virtual reality training platform developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International to help surgeons develop the muscle memory they need. The result? More confident, capable surgeons. And even more importantly, patients who can see. Explore more stories like Dr. Strauss's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. Congressman Mark Pocan was taking calls. Congressman Pocan, of course, is the guy who, as I recall, was live on this show. Maybe it was just shortly after it happened. Got thrown out of an ALEC meeting when they discovered that he was a Democrat. Oh, my God, we can't have that. ALEC is the American Legislative Exchange Council, something that was started back in the day by the Koch brothers and their friends. David Armiak is with us. He's the research director with the Center for Media and Democracy, the website exposedbycmd.org, Twitter handle D-U-B-O-O or exposedbycmd. David, welcome to the program. Tell us about the uh, ALEC meeting last week and the uh, uh, and, and you guys have filed an IRS complaint against uh, ALEC. I wanna, I wanna learn the details of that as well. Started the week by filing uh, ALEC complaints or state complaints against ALEC and state chairs and other leadership, including board members, task force leaders at ALEC and 15 states. The number of states can be viewed uh, on our website. The complaint is pretty clear. We found that ALEC Care, which is a software that ALEC provides its members for free, is worth, in fact, $3,000 and is being provided, you know, as a essentially an in-kind contribution. And why do we say in-kind contribution? Because it is uh, maintained by the company Voter Gravity, which is a Republican voter data company conceived and run by Ned Ryan. And those of you that don't know who uh, Ned Ryan is, he's the founder and president of the right-wing candidate trading or training operation, American Majority. He also has an affiliate, uh, American Majority Action. And all of these have been closely aligned with the Tea Party and, and other libertarian groups over the years. So, the, um, so, the, the so you're arguing that ALEC is just wandering into purely political territory, arguing that ALEC, which is a, it's a 501c3 or c4, but it's a nonprofit organization, is violating their nonprofit status? Yes, that is um, correct. And so we filed first IRS whistleblower complaint, and that came the week before. 
that was based both on our research and um, documents that we obtained through open records requests and through a whistleblower who is a member of ALEC. Essentially, for a number of reasons, we believe ALEC is violating its nonprofit status, which, you know, is supposed to be nonpartisan, right? But here they are offering this software, ALEC Care, which is really voter gravity run again, you know, by uh, American Majorities. Ned Ryan software that is connected and intertwined with the Republican National Committee. Yeah. Do you expect any result from this or is this more, you know, we're just, you know, tossing darts at you, but most are going to miss. It seems like, (laughs) you know, there've been so many efforts to take Alec down over the years. None of them have succeeded. Filed some complaints together with Common Cause in the past and have seen no action. Uh, So we aren't entirely, you know, optimistic here. In particular, because Donald Trump was elected, the IRS has really been decimated. Staff has been declined. The resources are are not there. And just for routine things, like requesting documents that should be publicly available, are now taking over two years in some cases. And we've had to file lawsuits against the IRS in order to, you know, obtain documents, again, that should be routinely and easily available. So we we don't really expect much action, but there's a new administration. And and so, you know, we hope that the more illegal activity that we draw attention to that's coming out of ALEC, that, you know, some action will be taken. We're talking with David Armiak, the research director at the Center for Media and Democracy, exposed by CMD.org is the website. David, for people who might be listening who want to help out or participate or or just support your efforts, what do they do? Please you know, visit our website, exposedbycmd.org or alecexposed.org. Take a look. You know, um, you know, on Alec Exposed, we have uh, membership lists or you know, what we call Alec politician lists or those that are tied to Alec. Um, you can contact your representatives if they're, they're members and express your um, you know, feelings about the organization. You can also you know, visit our blog, share our stories, I and mean, if you feel like it, you know, support us too if you're able to. Yeah, there you go. It's a, it's a great organization the Center for Media and Democracy, exposed by CMD or ALEC Exposed is the website. Great talking with you. My pleasure. We've got a lot of work to do, right? Collectively, all of us, we have a lot of work to do. And uh, this is is a piece of it. Extraordinary times. Karen in Cleveland, Ohio. Hey, Karen, what's on your mind? Oh, hi, Tom. Um, Oh, boy. Overload, fatigue, I think we're all suffering from it, but I really have to address something very, very important. Bottom line, cancer of Trump is permeating everything, whether it was the, you know, corona debacle, and then, of course, it accumulated into insurrection, the coup attempt, and uh, this is my take on all this. Of course, the Justice Department, I feel, is moving like molasses. I really need to stress this. We need to reframe the narrative. Republicans are fascists, and the Democrats really need to get together en masse, really address this, because this was actual genuine sedition. The whole Trump administration, I mean, so many people have been indicted for corruption, yet Trump just gets by like Teflon. Everything slides off of him. But we need to call it like it is. They are fascists. Yeah. When Reagan was president, he had more people in his administration indicted than any administration in the history of the country. And they referred to him as Teflon Ron, if if you're old enough to remember, because, you know, he just slid through it all. And and Trump is trying to repeat that. And by the way, George W. Bush did, too, you know, with his war crimes and his lies about Iraq. And now he's trying to rehabilitate himself. Uh, It's uh, well, we could say bye bye. We could say bye bye. Well, we just we just need to wake up a whole bunch more Americans, Karen. Uh, It's just crazy that elections are are being decided on a knife's edge when this is so obvious what is going on. Tom Harbin here with you. On the line with us is Katrina Vanden Heuvel, the editorial director and publisher at The Nation magazine, the website thenation.com, 
also the Twitter handle, or Katrina Nation. And uh, Katrina has just an absolutely brilliant piece. You can find it at The Nation. It was, uh, I believe, first published in The Washington Post. Democrats must control the crime narrative before it controls them. I think this is so spot on. And you can see the Republicans ginning this up. You know, murder is up, crime yeah. is up. Oh, my God, defund the police. What do we do? We don't deny that the homicide rate is up, nor do we avert our eyes from the shootings and the gun sales that are up. I think what we do as, as progressives is lay out a bold, empathetic set of issues and policies that sound real to people in communities demanding public safety, but not go back to the old, obsolete, outdated, failed playbook of more policing, of more incarceration, of more spending on policing. I think it's critical that we step back and understand the need for dealing with violent crime, but not filling our prisons or jails with those who have committed nonviolent offenses, drug offenses, and thinking hard about the need for social services in the context of public safety, which in many ways is what defund the police is. I have to say crafting messaging is critical. You know that, Tom. You're a messenger, but also someone of principle. And I think defund the police demands an extra six, eight, ten words. It doesn't stand on its own. When you spell it out, people say, yeah, we don't need more policing. We need more services. We need more nonviolent public safety measures in our community. So I think we need to lay that out and be firm about it. And the polls show people don't seek more mass incarceration. They want rehabilitation. My last point is there's a transpartisan element here. I think the Koch brothers are defunding our democracy in many ways, but there is a belief that filling of prisons is counterproductive. Mm -hmm. I do think we need more, you know, more reforms like bail reform. We're in a battle of narrative because the right, not just the right, blames those reforms for increase in crime, which is not true if one looks hard at it. Right. So, so the message should be some variation on defund police violence rather than defund the police. And let's put it should be. I mean, I think you need public safety. How do you best achieve public safety? The wave of progressive prosecutors, DAs across the country, Tom, something you may have covered on your program, I think is a very important uh, wave. I mean, whether mm -hmm. it's Larry Krasner in Philadelphia, who won quite handily, Shaza uh, Boudin, these are the best known. But there are people in Baltimore, I think it's Marilyn Mosby, in St. Louis, and around the country in small places in Texas, who understand that without bail reform, without more social services, without handling violent crime, which is about maybe 4%, that you have a chance without de-escalating nonviolent crime, without putting that into a paradigm right. of incarceration, you have more chance to deal with violent crime. So I think there's a common sense progressive pragmatism that we're seeing, and I would encourage your viewers to support these DAs, because they are seeing it from inside and have allies outside. I'm, I'm reading in the local media that uh, you can't buy ammunition right now in large chunks of Oregon. And that this is a, uh, because, you know, everybody's buying it uh, and guns as well. The price of guns are going up. And that this is a national phenomenon, much as it was in 2000, uh, early 2009, right after Obama was elected. And then in, again in 2012, when he was reelected, there were there were these massive nationwide gun and ammunition shortages. And that last year was the biggest year for gun sales in the history of the country. My recollection is 30 or 40 million guns were sold. I mean, you're right at the nexus of progressive media at thenation.com. Has anybody done an analysis of the of the correlation and perhaps even causation, the association in any case, between the number of guns in circulation and the homicide rate? Very, very, very good idea. You know, I've seen some media analysis of the stories. That's very different than data causation. But how can you look at Chicago, for example, where on any given weekend, 40, 50, 60 people killed in gun shootings and not see some causality? It is the case that states with background gun checks do a little better. But the sale of guns is part of the kind of, you know, the right-wing nationalist politics that, you know, we're experiencing. I mean, there is a feeling 
though I think we need to talk to people as much as we can, that there is a civil war underway well, in this country. A whole bunch as of people. you pointed out, Obama's election, the fear, the wrongly stoked fear that the guns were going to be taken away from you moves people to take action. I don't know how much of it is the public safety piece. I mean, Chicago is a wash in guns. And, They're coming know, from Indiana. Jesse Jackson, coming from Indiana and coming from states with uh, the background checks are inadequate to the extreme. Jesse Jackson would come into our office every six months to talk to us about the state of the nation. And, you know, jobs in, guns out. Instead, we're getting guns in, jobs out. And I think some of that plays a role, especially in this post-pandemic, not post-pandemic, into the in the pandemic era. uh, It's fueling uh, some of what you mentioned. I am with you. And I think that this is like super critical, particularly with elections coming. The title Democrats must control the crime narrative before it controls them by Katrina Vandenhoevel, both of The Washington Post and TheNation.com. Katrina, thank you so much for dropping by. It's always thank you very much, Tom. Congressman Mark Pocan is with us in our progressive national town hall meeting. Congressman Pocan, former vice chair, former co-chair of the Congressional Progressive Caucus, a member of the caucus, represents the 2nd District of Wisconsin and the U.S. House of Representatives, is also on the Appropriations, Education, and Labor Committees. There is this allegation that this million-dollar donation from this uh, rental real estate baron um, just after the, uh, uh, the moratorium was extended back in uh, May or June um, might have influenced the Democrats. Do you, uh, I, I don't know what to make of that story. So, you know, honestly, uh, bluntly, Tom, we should have probably had uh, some assistance for especially small landlords, people who might own a duplex, and if they weren't collecting rent, they still had a mortgage, they needed help. We didn't do that back when we were doing everything else last year because there were so many things that had to happen. So we did do rental assistance, but we needed to get that word out more to people. So, you know, I understand why some Dems might have been mildly hesitant. Of course, no one should be saying we shouldn't have a eviction moratorium, and we did have some members that were weren't quite there yet, but it all happened in the last 24 hours. It was very hard to get it done, and we knew that we would need 60 votes in the Senate anyway. So the best answer was to have the White House do it. They were worried about a legal challenge, but all of this, uh, the silver lining out of all this is it raised awareness of the funds that are available. There's a lot of funds available. In my state of Wisconsin, we have $700 million, of which about $300 million have been given out. There's still $400 million more for people who can get up to 15 months of assistance, and that's true across the country. So so another good bit of the news, not only did Cory Bush inspire, but also I think we've educated a lot of people how they can get assistance, which helps people stay in their homes, but it also helps the landlords to make sure that you know if they're paying mortgages, they can also have the rent covered. Um, that's great. And just uh, one last question, and then we'll pick up calls. Our, our lines are filling up right now. Um, is uh, I've been very, very concerned for quite some time, for, for a couple of months now, that this uh, so-called uh, bipartisan problem solvers, uh, they call it a trillion dollar bill, it's apparently only $500 billion in new money, and that over, what, a decade? Um, that that legislation, which is now being applauded and lauded and pushed to the front of the news cycle in the, in the mainstream media across the country, um, is going to deflate, is intended to deflate the enthusiasm for the three and a half trillion dollar bill that you and Bernie and and all the guy all the folks in the Progressive Caucus are, are working so hard to put together and get out there, um, am I being uh, unnecessarily nervous here? I, I think we're still all right, Tom. There's only a three-seat margin in the House, and uh, we've been very clear as a progressive caucus, uh, as has Nancy Pelosi been very clear, that the two bills are going to move together. And uh, honestly, Kirsten Cinema has not given me any trust uh, right now, so I'm going to guarantee you that you know, we have to have them move together, that we're not going to gladly pay Tuesday for a hamburger today, which is you know, the old Popeye uh, mm-hmm. cartoon, uh, Wimpy, by yeah. dating myself by giving that example. But that's kind of what you know, some people are suggesting. We're saying both are really important. At the end of the day, people will realize how really important that three and a half trillion is. When you uh, expand Medicare to include dental, vision, and hearing, when you uh, make the child tax credit uh, in place for years, uh, that is going to lift half the children out of poverty in this country. I mean, those are huge measures that are in that three and a half trillion. That's what people will remember at the end of the day, not just the attempt to pass something bipartisan. Um, it'll be the big important stuff that comes, and, and we're still going to do those tandem. 
them. That's the wish of, of the vast, vast, vast majority of Progressive Caucus members. Yeah, amen. Okay, let's pick up some phone calls here. Dick in Cottage Grove, Wisconsin, you are on the air with Congressman Pocamp. Hi, Congressman. Uh, I am one of your constituents in Cottage Grove, and I have to say that you frustrate me because I can never find anything to argue with you about, but uh, Rojo gives me plenty of opportunity for that anyway. <laughs> uh, my, my question, excuse me? He gives me a few, too. I agree. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> my, my question is, are, are you and the Progressive Caucus prepared to stand up against any privatization or, or Defense Department money to be included in this so-called bipartisan infrastructure bill? Yeah, I mean, we've said, I think, I believe we've written a letter, but I know we've absolutely made statements that we didn't want that. No, we did do a letter. A number of us uh, signed a letter saying no defense spending in it. I haven't read the 2,700 pages that were released Sunday night yet, but I don't believe there was funding um, that I know of anyway that's in that infrastructure bill going to defense. Morris, Long Beach, California, listening on KPFK. You are on the air with Congressman Pocan. Good morning, everybody. Listen, the United States of America is at war, and nobody's going to deny that we are at war. So we need to summon all of our resources to beat this foe called COVID-19. Now, I believe that the President of the United States, Mr. Pocan, can go down into Texas, can go down into Florida, can go down into Louisiana with FEMA and take over and say, we got to stop the spread of this virus. We ain't got no time. We ain't got no room for no politics if people are dying, okay? So that's what we need to do. Now, tell me if I'm right or wrong. Can the President do that? Just going in there with his executive powers and say, look, y'all put my country at, 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 at risk right here. I can't have it no more. And this is what we're going to do with FEMA. Everybody getting shots. Everybody getting supplements. You know, we're going to step in here and do something with that. Am I crazy? Am I right on the money? And thank you for taking my call. You know, Morris, I agree with your sentiment. I, I don't honestly know if the president can, through FEMA, do something directly about this. But I'm with you. Um, you know, the Delta variant right now is showing us that, you know, this is the variant now, but there could be more. And I think also, you know, Morris, it makes me uh, look at, we got to solve this globally because even if we solve it in places like Madison, we have 80% of the people vaccinated or over 18, um, that doesn't solve it if, if people around the world are still uh, getting COVID and having more variants uh, created and ultimately that can affect people. So we have to look at this even globally. It's not just in the United States, although you're right, places like Louisiana, Florida, you know, other southern areas that seem to have the biggest problem. We wish that they'd get their acts together. I don't know if the president can use FEMA directly, but I also want to raise the issue that we have to deal with this globally too in order to really Stop it. Charles in Portland, you're on the air with Congressman Pocan. Good morning, Tom. Good morning, Congressman. And uh, Tom, I, I, uh, Congressman Pocan, Congressman Connor are just worthy, worthy replacements for Bernie. It's been a real pleasure having him. Thank you so much for this, this resource. Sure. Um, but uh, I, I want to ask about Citizens United. It seems like uh, uh, corporate personhood and corporate donations of McCutcheon are like cutting our knees off for any dealing with climate change, global warming, COVID, anything else. What is the progress on overturning either or both of those? It seems like they're building precedent on it. So it, it's time sensitive in some ways, a matter of months or years versus years or decades. But yet I hear nothing about it. I know not everything to be top page, but what's going on with that? Sure, Charles. First of all, thank you for that very nice compliment. Although I got to tell you, Bernie um, has done an amazing job in this three and a half trillion dollar reconciliation package, and um, I'm so appreciative of uh, his continued service. It, it's really amazing. Um, you know, the, the difficulty, as you know, is the 60 vote rule, the filibuster rules in the Senate. So we have HR1 that has a number of measures around campaign finance reform, but right now we're having difficulty getting them to move because of the very thing you brought up, the special interest. And um, you know, we just had a special election yesterday, a primary uh, in Ohio, where we saw the outside money pour in uh, millions of dollars. Um, and, you know, it may be one thing to have it in a Democratic primary and whoever won the primary, you know, I don't know if that is what matters on what I'm about to say, but, you know, compared to what the Republicans and conservatives can put forward, it's, it's pennies compared to the dollars that they can put in. And we have to get our hands on campaign finance reform. The good news, Charles, is a lot of candidates, especially newer candidates, are doing no corporate tax pledges, um, but we need to do more to actually put something into place into law. 
Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows firsthand how VR training platforms like ForgeFX can help meet the demand for skilled workers. Anywhere you go look, there's going to be a shortage of welders. VR training can help welding students learn the skills they need to begin and advance in their career. The beauty of virtual reality is it simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Explore more stories like Alex's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be Continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be Continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. Tim in Hendersonville, North Carolina. You are on the air with Representative uh, Pocan. Hey, just a real quick statement. I am, like you, a small business owner. Uh, signed graphics in our business for over 40 years. And this is a follow-up call. Remember I told you that uh, uh, we had reapplied to the SBA for an extension of our SBA loan that uh, we were given. Uh, and it, in all fairness, it took, in 2020, it took less than 30 days to receive the money, get qualified, and so on. It's been over 120 days now, and I've received nothing back. I mailed 40 letters, snail mails, but all the SBA persons, uh, Ms. Guzman, uh, Ms. Delasquez, everybody, and, and still on the, on the website, it just says processing, 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 nothing. I just, I don't understand it. And, and one other quick note. Uh, Eric Gash is. I was going to throw my hat in the ring to run against Madison Cawthorn, that ridiculous person from my district, NC11 here in North Carolina. But a friend of mine, Eric Gash, who's a former NFL player, is going to take that spot. And we will get him elected. I promise you that. But uh, what, what do I do here? Yeah, Tim, that's, uh, first of all, great news because uh, Madison Cawthorn is. Um, one of the dimmer uh, bulbs in Congress, period. I mean, uh, just last week, I think there were two or three major things that came out about him trying to take a gun through the airport. Uh, he um, said remarks on the floor again that were just uh, completely outrageous. And uh, thank you for doing uh, those efforts. Um, I would say normally contact your member of Congress, but having you just said that you have got Mass and Cawthorn, I would say maybe contact one of your U.S. senators because there is at least uh, we have kind of a, a special line to get through and try to get answers. And I'll tell you, it's not even fast for us because there's so many people and there's so many requests right now, as you can well imagine. But it will help tremendously. So rather than writing, you know, that 41st letter, um, you know, if you haven't had a chance yet, please reach out to your U.S. senators and see if they can help you. Um, you know, normally I'd say your your house member, but again, your unique situation, and uh, let let them try to help you navigate. Um, I just had Administrator Guzman in Madison this morning. We had a roundtable with businesses, uh, so uh, very timely, and she was just talking about you know the volume that they're going through right now, and yet some really great things they're working on, including with navigators to help uh, moving forward. So, um, I, as a small business owner, Tim, I appreciate what you're saying, but please uh, get that extra help. Uh, I would recommend that rather than you continuing to write letters because I think it will help expedite things. Even even if you're represented by, you know, some right-wing bozo like Madison Cawthorn, don't pretty much all the members of the House of Representatives have at least one person on their staff who does constituent relations, whose, whose job is to work on behalf of the people that they represent and, and not care what party they're from? Yeah, absolutely. We don't ask that question. We do whatever we can and we get through lots of red tape for people. Uh, having said that, there are some of the newer members, Tom, who have hired a really strongly ideological people and they forget what their job is as a member of Congress. Oh and uh, given what Tim just said, I, I strongly think he should go to his U.S. senators who will hopefully do just what you and I just discussed. Yeah. Cheryl in Dallas, Texas, you're on the air with Congressman Pocan. 
Thank you. Congressman Polkian, I'm just wondering, um, I am in North Dallas. Now, our, where I live, our rents are going up $300. And the excuse that they're using is that there's a shortage of rental units. Now, I am on, my husband and I are on fixed income. We're on Social Security, and we are on pensions. Now, I understand that there's a possibility that we might get a 5 to 6% COLA increase. However, that is not going to help us, and that has very little to do with it anyway, with, three, with a $300 increase. So are you guys looking into that? To me, this is akin to having a hurricane and having uh, gas companies increase the price of gas. So is anyone looking into this? Hmm. Specifically, I, I missed it, Cheryl, what the, what you were talking about, What looking into what? Horrendous. Go ahead. I'm sorry. I was just going to say her rent is, Cheryl, you said your rent is going up $300. Just in case he's having a hard time understanding your phone, which sounds a little distorted. Uh, you said your rent yeah. is going up $300 a month and you're on Social Security and you can't afford it. We can't yeah. afford it. It's going up $300. And the, and the point being, they said there's a shortage of rental units. And that is the reason that it's going up. And I'm just wondering if, if Congress is looking into that. Yeah, Cheryl, so part of, uh, and, and Maxine Waters has been fierce on this, is trying to get additional money for affordable housing, because you're right, it's true in my district in the city of Madison, same thing. Uh, it's hard. We need more affordable housing units, and we need that across the country. So absolutely, uh, that's part of what I think there will be some funding for, hopefully, in this bipartisan infrastructure bill. Um, but you, you, you bring up something that's very, very valid. We have to put more money into affordable housing in order to um, address the needs that are out there. Specifically to um, Social Security, if I can, just very quickly, you know, there's a measure that uh, John Larson from Connecticut has that over 200 Democrats are sponsors of. I think it's called the 21st Century Social Security Act, but it might be Social Security 2100, something around that as a name. But it, it provides for a way to pay for Social Security into the future as well as provide better increases for people on Social Security. I'm hoping we can get a, a vote on that in Congress as well. That would be important. That would be important. Thank you for that. David in St. Paul, Minnesota, you are on the Earth Congress. Oh, hang on. Since Citizens United exists, and, and part of that provision is, is would be included in the Voting Rights Act um, that isn't getting passed, what is, the, what is the hesitancy about putting that as a standalone legislation just to overturn Citizens United? And if nothing else, in 2022, you run on that's part of the Democratic platform is to, you know, overturn Citizens United. I think it'd be... You call the bill Citizens Against Citizens United instead of corporate, you know, instead of supporting the corporations. So just I would appreciate just if things aren't going to get passed, let's add something else into it. So, you know, people are aware that we don't we want to take our democracy back from the corporations on top of the fact that these corporations are still supporting people that uh, supported um, the insurrection. So I'm just looking for a comment on that. Thank you. You know, first of all, David, we voted on that in H.R. 1, right? So the question would be, at what point do we decide to break out parts of H.R. 1? Um, you know, I, I think there's still some hope that uh, people like Senator Manchin will see the Republicans have no real intention of working with us on anything and that we need to figure out some ways around the filibuster, because I do think that something that, you, that does unify Democrats is around voting rights. So I think there's a little bit of a chicken and egg about when you start breaking bills like that apart and when you try to see what you can move through the Senate. But we did essentially vote on that through H.R. Uh, 1. Um, but I hear what you're saying. I, I, I um you know, I, I think just kind of stay tuned because we're. I don't know when that time will be that people decide uh, that, you know, Joe Manchin's had enough time to decide the Republicans aren't working with us. But I, I hear exactly what you're saying. Jimmy in Arkadelphia, Arkansas, you're on the air with Congressman Pocan. How do you access the rental assistance that's been passed for 60 days? Who do you go to? And the Republicans are terrible about not getting the message out on things like this. Could you help me? So every state got funds, and a lot of localities got funds, and there's funds specifically uh, around rental assistance. So if there are any rental organizations uh, in the county you live, or just try the county government, the Human Services Department, I would recommend they likely would know. Um, yesterday I talked to the Dane County Executive, Joe Parisi, and you know they're administering a lot of those funds through a couple of nonprofits uh, in the community, so I'm sure that's a similar structure. But start looking if there's a, any kind of a group 
that deals with uh, tenants or, or housing, try them first or try your county government, probably the human services area. They should have the best information to direct you. But I guarantee uh, there are funds available. John in San Francisco, you're on the air with Representative Pocan. Good morning, gentlemen, Congressman Pocan. Uh, he's a well-connected and prominent uh, congressman in, in Washington, D.C. And if he could maybe spread the word that uh, after last week's announcement that uh, Trump had tried to uh, uh, get someone to declare the Department of Justice Rosen um, to declare the election uh, corrupt, that's a clear case in, in my two years of law study, that's a clear case of uh, sedition, and sedition is also a death sentence. Can't we go and arrest him, you know, just on that alone and, um, you know, let and on a no-bail uh, hold and, um, you know, let the chips fall where they may and wait, for, you know, New York can get their stuff together when they need to? And I'll take my answer out the air. Thanks a lot. Thanks, John. John, I'm not a lawyer, certainly not a criminal defense lawyer, so I don't have uh, a direct answer for you other than to say, you know, we do have several committees, including Judiciary and Oversight and Government Reform. They're still looking at a number of things uh, on behalf of the Trump administration. We also have the commission uh, now that's dealing with what happened on January 6th. Between those three in particular, I assume that this subject is going to be coming up as fresh as it is. And also, you're right, as outrageous as this is. I mean, this is a guy who uh, did absolutely absolutely everything to remain in power after losing by 7 million votes, one of the biggest defeats uh, in the nation's history. And yet, um, you know, these actions still uh, allow enough people to be followers of the cult. Uh, it's going to break. Uh, at what point, I don't know, um, but it will break. Uh, Richard in Santa Fe, New Mexico, you're on the air with Congressman Pocan. Hi, thank you for taking my call, and, and it's a good uh, segue from um, the last caller. How do you enact the third section of the 14th Amendment? Um, how, how does that work? This is the part that says specifically that no person who has engaged in or encouraged an insurrection against the United States may serve in any political office. Is that what you're talking about, Richard? Correct. Uh, political, military, uh, civil, any, yeah. Right. Okay. How does that, how does yeah. that all work? Well, first, you're going to have to be able to prove it, right? And I think that's going to be the question of how you do it. I, I think the start that we're doing is with the commission on uh, January 6th. And if it comes down to people uh, that are being subpoenaed, come in. And uh, again, if people uh, don't show up for subpoenas, I hope we refer them to the Department of Justice for prosecution, because I don't think we can let that stand. Uh, but, you know, if we get information that points to someone, I think that's at that point, there'll be referrals to the legal system that'll accomplish what you're trying to, Richard. But I think you're going to have to get to that point first. And, and I think, you know, hopefully information that comes from uh, those who come before the commission might um, show us some of that direction. Peter in San Francisco, you are on the air with Representative Pocan. My question for Congressman Pocan is, why can't Congress make the child care credit permanent as they did make the uh, tax credit for the wealthy and corporations permanent? Because I think it would really lift all Americans up and many out of poverty, and it would empower we the people. What do you think of that? Yeah, Peter, this is, you know, Rosa DeLauro from Connecticut has made this, I think, one of her life missions in Congress, and uh, many of us support what you're saying. I think the, the probably the biggest reasons are is you have to have the, the cost uh, in a 10-year-out period, and you have to have it scored, and uh, we are doing just that with the $3.5 trillion package. We're making it, um, I think, for four or five years, and I apologize if I'm, I'm off a year on that. It's four or five years, um, but you're right. It's going to lift half of the, the children in this nation out of poverty. Uh, it's going to benefit something like 80% of the, the families in this country. And uh, it's it's a terrific program that people like Rosa have been champions for her entire career in Congress. And I think that's what we're getting towards. I think once people see how well this works, uh, we're in a much better place to do exactly what you and I want to do, which is make it permanent, permanent. Lorraine in San Diego, you're on the air with Congressman Pocan. Good morning. I would... Congressman, what can you tell us about the uh, escalation of U.S. forces in the South China Sea? There have been two groups of U.S. Uh, aircraft carriers sent to that area. The um, European uh, nations are sending 
their carriers into that area. It looks to me as though this is developing into something. Could you please give us some insights about the policy and uh, what is happening there? Yeah, Lorraine, I'm not going to have a great answer for you. Um, I serve on the Appropriations Committee, and we just finished our process, and I have not um, – I, I don't have a lot of information on this. This would be a great question for Representative Kana, who serves on the uh, Foreign Relations Committee and, and Foreign Affairs Committee, so he can actually help you um, probably with more information on it. But I, I don't have a direct answer. James in Spokane, Washington. You're on the air with Representative Pocan. Oh, we have just one minute, too. A real quick one, James. Yeah, I just want to emphasize that apparently, though redundant it might be, we need some additional legislation that emphasizes no one is above the law. Everyone is indictable, including the acting commander-in-chief. This is ridiculous. That baboon might be our president again in four years, you know? Thank you, James. Yeah, I, I think what we just need to do is make sure that the law is enforceable, right? Because I think the laws are in place. How do you make sure that enforceability is? And you're right, if somehow... Um, uh, the possible, uh, I think that you would, I hope could happen, uh, you know, Donald Trump would become president again. We have to make sure that uh, now that we know he'll surround himself by people that won't follow the laws, they'll follow him as a cult leader. Uh, we especially have to make sure we've got safety. Is it, uh, is it possible to separate the DOJ somehow from the executive branch in, or at least create some distance? Jerry in Chester, Virginia, you're on the air with Representative Pocan. Are they going to vote on this, this bipartisan bill and, and pass it? before they get the reconciliation package passed in the Senate before August recess? Or, they, or, or is it still, they still need both of these packages before you guys pass, pass the, the uh, bipartisan bill? Thank you. And, and let me just add to that, Congressman. Uh, we just saw a news report that um, Mitch McConnell is slow walking the bipartisan bill, which is up for, you know, appropriate uh, for adding amendments right now in the Senate. He's slow walking it and warning uh, that uh, if people uh, try to speed up the process, he's going to he's going to uh, back, you know, he's going to blow it up somehow. I, I hope this wakes uh, Joe Manchin up to what Republicans are really up to, right? Why he needs to, at some point, uh, break the filibuster for things like voting rights and other issues. Um, but, Jerry, well, there's a whip question out right now, but it's been the position of the, the, the Progressive Caucus that uh, both move together, the full bill uh, and the, the infrastructure bill. And it's also been the position of Nancy Pelosi uh, that that happened. So with a three-seat margin, um, I, I'm quite sure that uh, that's going to be the official position of the House. Pat, in Columbia, South Carolina, you're on the air with Representative Pocan. Yes, um, uh, Representative Pocan, I want to ask you about how y'all, it just saddened me how y'all running this um, governor down in New York, but then y'all got a Supreme Court justice that done the same thing he did, and nobody talks about that anymore. Can you explain that to me? And Matt Gates. <laughs> Thank you, Pat. Yeah. You know, I, I think the best thing I can say, Pat, is, um, you know, it seems that Republicans uh, reelect their offenders and Democrats uh, try to, you know, clean house. And I think the question is, um, is this report enough to say he has to leave? And I think that's what the legislature right now in New York uh, is going to make the decision on. Um, but, you know, we've done it over and over on the Democratic side. If, if someone uh, does something like this, they, they've been forced from office. Republicans, um, I guess, elect you president. Uh, so there's just a very different approach by the parties. Monica in Wilmington, North Carolina. You're on the air with Representative Pocan. I heard that um, uh, the post office had, uh, you know, about that post office funding 70 years in the future, that they had uh, had a vote on that, and the Congress had voted it away, bipartisan. And you heard, said earlier that it wasn't. No, it's very much still in place, and that's one of the biggest problems that we have. Um, uh, you know, uh, the will is there on the House side, and I'm sure there are some Republicans who would do it. Um, but, no, that is uh, this George Bush era um, hanging provision uh, that's causing most of the fiscal problems for the Postal Service. Bob in Portland, Maine, you're on the air with Representative Pocan. Hi, uh, I'm uh, piggybacking on a comment earlier about the, the joy, and uh, the thought I had right from the very beginning is, how is a uh, government official able to, without uh, to, without consequence, destroy government property? 
Um, and, and my thinking is, is why isn't he referred to the Justice Department for prosecution for doing so? Or why isn't he personally held liable and billed for the several million dollars worth of equipment that was destroyed? So, so, Bob, the argument he would make uh, is that he was uh, getting rid of, because they have cost overruns, getting rid of the inefficiencies, and he's going to consolidate sorting, even if it means slower delivery of mail, uh, but he's going to make the, the Postal Service fiscally sound, which is why I keep bringing up this 75-year prefunding uh, provision. That's the real reason why they're not fiscally sound. We don't need DeJoy to fix and I'm using my quotation fingers as I say that for those of you listening on the radio, uh, the Postal Service, because what will fix the Postal Service is really dealing with that that requirement. So he's not technically destroying equipment. He's dismantling it and, and consolidating the sorting. Um, but you and I would argue that that's hurting the Postal Service, and it is hurting the Postal Service. Uh, I've heard companies that say they used to use the Postal Service to deliver packages, and now they're using UPS. And uh, that's part of why we need the Board of Governors to act. Ken in Statesville, North Carolina. We have a minute and a half until the end of the hour here, Ken. You got a real quick question for Congressman Pocan, please? Yes, I've reached out to all my representatives there on this uh, cattle poison bill on the USDA. They've got it listed as a man-made disaster, and I'm not getting anywhere with it. And I'd really like to talk personally with uh, Mark Pocan on uh, this, being it affects his state so, so bad and everything there. Is there any way I could get that done? You are talking to him right now. Congressman? Yeah, yeah. what is it specifically, Ken? I'm sorry. This, this is on the FDA allowing the doubling of the sulfur rates there that created so much poison out here in the cattle industry and everything there. And we've been on to the government, all the representatives and everything, and uh, they have it listed as a man-made disaster. And I need to talk with you one-on-one on this. Yeah, well, I'll tell you what, I'll make sure my, my staff are listening, and uh, we'll look into the issue um, based on you presenting it right now. So we appreciate that, Ken. Okay, Congressman, uh, 10 seconds. What, what should we look for next week? Um, you know, a lot of members of Congress are in district uh, in August, and uh, a lot of senators will be as soon as they finish this process that Mitch McConnell's slow walking. Um, you know, that's a good opportunity to get in front of your member of Congress and be heard. So please look for opportunities to do so. There you go. Congressman, it's always great having you with us. Thank you so much for dropping by today. You've been listening to Tom Hartman. For audio and video archives, visit TomHartman.com.